The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. The sign of Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time like any, uh, unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through to 38. It's on page 1026 of the Church Bibles or up on the screen. Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, Johnny. As you know, I'm the ancient vicar who uh, doesn't seem to go away somehow. <laughs> they can't get rid of me. <laughs> Let's be quiet and uh, pray together as we begin. Father, how we thank you for your presence with us we, as we prepare to receive from you, sit at your feet, as the other Mary did, 
and gather around your table. We pray that you will meet with us, each one, and that you will touch our lives in a fresh way this morning. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're looking at perhaps one of the most famous passages in the Bible. But we're at the beginning of Advent, the, uh, the start of the church's year. And you may think that uh, reading about Christmas at the beginning of December is a little bit early. I, I don't know, you may be one of those people who starts preparing for Christmas in January. Um, Tom says, I think, in the link that he's, he's eager to get on and do the shopping and uh, get the children organised. And probably that's true for many, many people, isn't it? For others, you know, there's a slight resentment about... Uh, all the razzmatazz starting in October or November, and uh, you know we we regret all of that, and it seems strange to be thinking about Christmas this early. Although, to be really honest, most of us in reality we're we're so afraid of having to go dash in at the last minute on Christmas Eve, panic-stricken, to get uh, presents for people we've. Uh, forgotten about or haven't got organised, that we think, oh gosh, we, we really do want to uh, start earlier and earlier, and we promise that we will next year. Uh, thinking about Christmas coming early reminds me of someone who, who used to be on the staff here as, as an informal associate minister. And um, he, was, he and his wife were travelling one day from London down to Devon. Uh, it was the middle of August, bright sunny day, and they decided that they'd stop off in Shear for a coffee. So uh, they did that, and they were amazed as they drove into the village to find it was covered in snow. Um, artificial, of course, uh, including the church and the spire, because they were filming The Holiday, which is, of course, a film that's uh, shown at Christmas time and I guess most of us have seen. Or Christmas coming early makes me think of the time when we arrived in... Uh, in Guildford with our three small children, some of you will remember. And the first Christmas, 1970, we went into church for the midnight service and uh, we came out an hour later and we hadn't known that it had started snowing and been snowing the whole time that we were in church. And we came out to the most magical white scene. It was absolutely beautiful. So, you know, Christmas coming early, well, um, I don't know, but this is the start of Advent. It's the season when we remind ourselves that we live between the two great landmarks of history, the first and the second coming of Jesus. And as Christians, we're, we're asked to orientate our lives around those two focal points as we look back to the first coming and on to the second, and we'll be doing that in the communion service. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is in this service a looking back to the first coming and on to the second. So it's not inappropriate that we start with this wonderful account of the angel's visit to Mary. But of course, to reflect on it properly, you need to go back to our first reading in the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 7, and a particular sign that was given to a king. The king was Ahaz, he was king of the southern um, kingdom of Judah, including the, the Jerusalem area, 
and uh, he was a pretty evil man. He was a tyrant, actually. Um, but like many, many tyrants, he was a weak man. And he knew that the neighboring nations were plotting to attack and to destroy their country. And um, Isaiah the prophet went to him and he went with this message. He said, um, the, the, the nations around had said, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves. And uh, we told, we're told that although Ahaz was king, we read that the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So like most tyrants, he was a weak and a feeble man. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to him uh, to tell him basically to trust in God. Uh, what he fears wouldn't happen and all would be well. And the message was, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, it will not happen. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But knowing that he was a weak man, God told him, well, ask for a sign and I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz said rather famously, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds great, doesn't it? Except if you read the whole passage, you realize that actually uh, he wasn't going to ask for a sign because he'd already got his own plan. He didn't want God's plan, thank you very much. He'd got his own plan. Have you ever felt like that? Um, when God first called me into the ministry, I had my own plan, frankly, and it was deterred for a few years because I knew what I wanted to do, and God kept nudging me and calling me back. Um, Ahaz effectively said no to God, and God came back to him and said, well, in that case, I will give you a sign anyway. Isaiah went to him and said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, brief time of respite because um, this, we don't know who the woman was. She was possibly a member of the royal household, but she was a young unmarried woman, a virgin. Uh, she was going to be with child and by the time the child was old enough to distinguish between right and wrong, so you're looking at least two, three years ahead, aren't you? Um, so there was going to be a gap. If you just trust the Lord, it will all go away. But if you don't listen to me, then eventually uh, you are going to be attacked, not by the nations you fear, but by much more powerful nations around, Egypt and Assyria and nations like that. So God gave him a sign, and Ahaz effectively said, no, thank you very much. The sign was a particular sign for that historical period, but of course we now know that it was a sign that was looking forward, uh, and it wasn't just for Ahaz the king and the people of Judah, it was a sign for the whole world. And so you move forward in history to where we are in Luke chapter one, to the fulfillment of the promise, the sign that God gave to all of us. And we come to this very tiny, insignificant village in Israel called Nazareth. Today it's a busy, crowded, noisy, noisy bustling city full of uh, uh, activity and the smell of eastern spices. A lot of you have been there. 
Um, it's about the size of Guildford, maybe even a bit larger. Um, it's a typically Middle Eastern town. Um, and it's the town actually in Israel which has the highest proportion of Christians still today, although the number of Christians in uh, Israel is diminishing um, because it's an Arab town and they're, um, they're Arab Christians, most of them. Um, they're nearly 30% of the population in Nazareth. When the angel Gabriel went there, it was a very different story. Nazareth, as far as we can tell, was a tiny village. 20, 30 families. Um, okay, families in those days meant more, well, think of Gilbert and Sullivan families. You know, HMS Pinafore, we are his sisters and his cousins and his aunts, the resounding chorus all the time. Families in those days were not just the nuclear 2.3 people in a family or whatever it is, children. Um, it was all your sisters and your cousins and your aunts. So even if you multiply 20 or 30 families up, you're only getting to uh, two or 300 people. So if you think of Joseph as a man with his carpenter's shop in Nazareth, we've almost certainly got it wrong. In fact, the word that is translated carpenter in the Bible is the word tectone, which uh, actually means it's a general building term. And most of the building in that part of the world still today actually is in stone. So he was probably a general builder type stonemason. Uh, it's the word from which we, of course, get architectone, the man who plans the building from the beginning. Um, so if Joseph wasn't a, a man with a shop in a big town, he was almost certainly a jobbing builder with his bag of tools, wasn't he? And he'd work in his own home doing some repair work for people in the village and he'd go into their homes. But almost certainly he'd walk the four miles up the road to a city which is not mentioned at all in scripture, a very large Roman city called Sepphoris. And he would have almost certainly found plenty of work there. So Nazareth was insignificant in his day, except that there were, well, if you looked out of Nazareth, if you, if you go up to the hill behind Nazareth, and many of you have done that, and look down, you, you look across an enormous valley. Um, there's, a, there's a huge spine of, mountain, of a mountain range that runs down the middle of, of Israel. And there's only one valley that cuts right across it, a broad valley. It's variously called in scripture in the Old and New Testaments, the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Esdraelon, the Valley of Megiddo. And it's a place where all sorts of things happened that are described in the Bible. It's where Gideon had his famous victories. It's where Josiah was killed in battle. It's where Saul finally met disaster. It's where Naboth had his vineyard. It's where Jehu slaughtered Jezebel. It's where the woman of Shunem uh, constantly sort of provided for Elisha the prophet and she and her husband built a little sort of extension up on the roof with a bed and a chair and a table so that he could work there when he wanted to. Um, and Elisha said to his servant one day, he said, um, what can we do for this woman who's been so good and kind to us? And uh, his servant said, well, she and her husband are really pretty old and they don't have any children. 
interesting as a background. Um, so Elisha said to the woman, in a year's time, you will be carrying a son in your arms. So a place that as Jesus would have looked out as he grew up along this enormous wide valley um, that was full of biblical history. It was a place also with a huge number of roads around it, big roads. There was the main road that the pilgrims took from Nazareth town to Jerusalem to go to the temple. There was what was called the Via Maris, the way of the sea that went up the coastal strip through, of course, Gaza. Um, and that's where all the uh, merchants would have gone with their laden caravans. And there was another road that went from west to east, the, uh, the road which soon joined the Silk Road, uh, along which all the incense and trade and spices went, and along which the Roman armies would have traveled to the eastern borders of their enormous empire. So Jesus grew up in an insignificant village with a huge amount of history in his back garden, biblical history, and the world's traffic, in a way, passing his front door. And that valley, I mean, you may be one of the people who reads the Bible in this way, it's called Megiddo. If you think there's going to be a literal battle ending the world, it is in Armageddo, Armageddon, of course, that it will take place, if that's how you read the Bible. Uh, I personally don't. Um, so Jesus was brought up with this, in this tiny, tiny, insignificant place. It was to there in Nazareth um, that the angel Gabriel went to this young girl. Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary's response is something not just for Christmas or for Advent, but for the whole of life, isn't it? And that's what we're thinking about today. She's overwhelmed with the knowledge that God is blessing her in the most marvellous way. Of course, it's always a delight when a news arrives of a new baby. Um, travels like wildfire, the prospective parents are incredibly proud and overflowing with joy. They want to tell everybody that's how it's meant to be. But for a Jewish girl, unmarried, in a tiny village at that time, it would have been a very different story and rather unwelcome news, wouldn't it? The future looked bleak. Society there didn't think much of those sort of things then. At best, surely she'd have mixed feelings, and that was indeed the case. It's not surprising that she, we read she was greatly troubled at his words and wonder what kind of greeting this might be. And Gabriel's reply is to say what uh, angels always seem to say when they put in an appearance in the Bible. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. Yes, the whole thing is something very personal for Mary, but it is also an event which is going to bring enormous blessing to the world. Verse 28, the Lord is with you, has greatly blessed you, you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Not surprising that she immediately asks the angel, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the reply comes back, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. Mary knows beyond a shadow of doubt that she's caught up in a miracle. And a little later when she visited her cousin, who was now with child, of course, Elizabeth said to her, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And so Mary cries out in that wonderful song, which we didn't have time to read this morning. My soul praises or magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. It's all very personal, but it wasn't just Mary and Elizabeth and the family who were being blessed. Soon the whole world would discover that this event, this sign, was somehow of universal significance. And they join in the chorus, which Mary expresses in her Thanksgiving song. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. And if you, we, we know it well, don't we, the Magnificat. Uh, it's clearly a song, not just a personal blessing and salvation, although it is that, and that is, of course, what the name Jesus means. But it's about worldwide transformation. And don't we need that? The Magnificat is all about political, economic, uh, social, um, spiritual transformation because it will involve bringing down the mighty from their seat, exalting the humble and meek, feeding the hungry, and flooding the world with mercy and forgiveness for all time. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And all of that is expressed when we say in the creed, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Over the years, the Protestant church, I think, has reacted so much against the wrongful exaltation and worship of Mary that we fail to give her the honor which is her due. She is quite literally the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's what scripture calls her. One of the most important questions a man can ever ask himself when he falls in love is surely, would I like this person to be the mother of my children? And when God asked himself that question, he chose Mary. And you could say in a way, she became the first sort of surrogate mother. There must have been something very special and wonderful about Mary, and yet, she was, just like you and me, a sinner who needed God's grace, forgiveness, and salvation. And it's Mary's response to all of this, which is actually the climax of the angel's visit and the climax of the Christmas story, isn't it? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. 
She says a resounding yes to what God is going to do in her, through her, bringing this marvelous promise of salvation and blessing to the whole world. It's yes to God's word as the angel has brought it to her, and it's yes to God's spirit who the angel says will overshadow her. In fact, the whole event, actually, which is so enormously significant, dissolves into this single word. It condenses and distills into the single word, yes. Ahaz was promised a sign from God and he said, no, I've got my own plans. And God now offers a sign to the world through Mary and she says, yes. The sin and chaos of the world is the direct result of humanity saying no to God. That's what the Genesis story is all about, isn't it? And Christmas is all about the challenge to say yes, the challenge to all of us today to say yes to what God has done in sending his son. So for us, the question is, have we said yes or somehow do we need to repeat it uh, to the Lord this morning? Yes to his word. The world needs to say that because sin began with refusing to listen to him. And we were made to live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But what happened in the Garden of Eden? They doubted, they uh, disobeyed God's word. They refused to listen. It also means saying not only yes to God's word, but yes to God's spirit. And opening ourselves to him as we rejoice that in Christ we are wonderfully blessed. That we too, having experienced the grace and forgiveness of God and started to follow him, are like Mary, having Christ formed within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So yes or no. It's amazing how much can be conveyed by a single word or phrase, isn't it? Lots of people get married here. Um, there are only two words they have to remember in the whole service because the rest is a response that they make. They, uh, you know, the words are said and they repeat them. There are only two words they have to remember. Don't suppose they have to rehearse them that much. I will. Amazing how much is compressed into those two words, isn't it? I remember... Uh, eldest daughter Helen when uh, she went to Greece, I don't know, mid-80s, long, long time ago. And she'd gone off to uh, a job we knew nothing about and uh, to be by a head, offered to her through a headmaster who um, we didn't know at all, although he'd interviewed her in this country. And you know what it's like, you go up to the airport, you have these inconsequential conversations while you have a cup of coffee, and then all of a sudden, too quickly, it's time for her to go through the gate. And so she went through and we said our goodbyes. And then as she was going through, she turned around and she came back and she hugged us and she said, thanks for everything. Do you know, it's amazing how much, I may be a sentimental old father, but uh, it's amazing how much you can compress into a word or two, isn't it? Same is true of the yes or no that we say to God. Thank you for listening. Can I ask you to stand as we uh, reflect together?
and pray together. We may have said yes a very long time ago. Perhaps we need to ink that in, as it were. We may never have said a wholehearted yes. Maybe we've got our own plans. So just in the quietness, can I suggest that we say in our own way our wholehearted yes to the Lord who comes to us with the promise of salvation, peace, forgiveness, and life eternal. Father, thank you for that wonderful sign. And this morning, we say our yes to your word and to your spirit. And may we go out living out that yes for the rest of our lives. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.